0: You are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontramont. Welcome. My co-host today is Michelle Jewell-Shaw, mom, teacher, photographer, virtuoso tambourine player, and chairperson of Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses. Hi, Michelle.
1: Hi, Jeremy, and hello to all of our listeners out there.
0: In a couple of minutes, we'll be talking to two guests, April Havens, site manager at Piney Point Lighthouse in Maryland, and Lee Radzak, the longtime site manager for Split Rock Lighthouse in Minnesota. Lee has a new book out, and we'll be talking about that. So, Michelle, we're continuing to give small tours by reservation right now at Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouse uh, here on the New Hampshire seacoast. But on August 1st, we'll be going back to our usual public tour schedule with open houses every Sunday from 1 to 5 p.m.
1: Yes, that's pretty exciting. The small tours have been going really great too. I love that, you know, we kind of get to know our guests a little bit more than when we're, you know, having hundreds of people at the Lighthouse each each visit. However, I'm pretty excited to get back to the open house schedule.
0: So this is episode 127 of Lighthearted. This is July 11th, 2021. Uh, what's happened on the State Lighthouse history, Michelle?
1: On July 11th, 1933, at Lighthouse in Atlantic City, New Jersey, was deactivated after 76 years of service. When it was first built, the lighthouse was the tallest structure in the area, but over time, the light was obscured by large buildings. Today, Ebsenken Lighthouse is open all year and it's a major tourist attraction. It's the tallest lighthouse in New Jersey at 171 feet.
0: Also on this date on July 11th, 1889, the American writer E.B. White was born in Mount Vernon, New York. He's best remembered for his children's books, Charlotte's Web and Stuart Little. He once said, quote, "'I arise in the morning torn between a desire "'to improve the world and a desire to enjoy the world. "'This makes it hard to plan the day," unquote." So let's introduce our first guest for today. Michelle, please help me give some background on Piney Point Lighthouse.
1: Sure, Jeremy, the lighthouse at Piney Point in Maryland, 14 miles from Chesapeake Bay, up the Potomac River, is the oldest lighthouse on the river. It began service in 1836 to warn of dangerous shoals. It was built by John Donahue, a prolific lighthouse builder in Maryland who was active for more than a quarter century.
0: The conical brick tower is 26 feet tall with a 13 foot diameter at its base and its light is 34 feet above mean high water. For many years the lighthouse had a 5th order Fresnel lens and there was also a fog bell tower beginning in 1880. The bell was eventually replaced in 1936 by a foghorn.
1: The light was decommissioned in 1964. The station was used by the Coast Guard as housing for some years and then in 1980 the property was transferred to St. Mary's County. The county licensed the St. Clements Island Potomac River Museum to preserve the light station, and a museum was established in a Coast Guard dwelling near the lighthouse.
0: After the museum was flooded by a hurricane in 2003, it was relocated to the Stewart Petroleum Office building further up the street. Today the museum campus is spread between two historic buildings, the main Museum and the Potomac River Maritime Exhibit.
1: Earlier this year, Dan Spinella of Artworks Florida created a replica of Piney Point's old Fifth Order Fresnel lens, and the lens was installed in the Piney Point Museum. The museum's exhibits focus on the construction and operation of the lighthouse, lighthouse keepers, the role of the Coast Guard, and other subjects related to the history of the site.
0: April Havens is the site manager at the Piney Point Lighthouse Museum and Historic Park. I had a chance to speak with April recently. Let's listen to that conversation now. I'm speaking with April Havens today, and uh, April is the site manager at the Piney Point Lighthouse Museum and Historic Park in Maryland. Thank you so much for being with me today, April.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Let me just start with a a little bit about you. Of course, we'll talk about the the lighthouse and museum in in a couple of minutes, but how did you come to be the site manager at Piney Point Lighthouse?
2: Well, I am a retired state park ranger. And I worked at the Point Lookout State Park here in Maryland, which also has a lighthouse. Mm -hmm. And so when I retired, I wanted to continue working with people and teaching people history and just, um, you know, educating the public about the area here where I live in St. Mary's. So
0: it sounds like a good fit. Uh, And your title, as I said already, is site manager of the Piney Point Lighthouse Museum and Historic Park. It's a a little bit of a mouthful. It sounds like there's plenty uh, to do there. A lot, of, a lot to keep you busy.
2: It's never a dull day. Um, <laughs> I'm just kind of a jack of all trades and a master of none. <laughs> some days we're scheduling tours. Some days I'm out here giving tours and, and helping with the day-to-day operations.
0: Let's talk about the, the history of Piney Point itself, the location there. First of all, how did the point get its name?
2: The point got its name because of all the loblolly trees that are growing around here.
0: Uh, Loblolly, for anybody who doesn't know, what is a loblolly tree?
2: It's a pine tree, a very, very tall pine tree.
0: Okay. I'm not sure we have those in New England. I don't think we do. Are those uh, common in your area, in the Chesapeake region?
2: They're very common in the Chesapeake region and the eastern region of of the U.S.
0: I'm no tree expert. Maybe we do have them in New England. (laughs) We have a lot of... uh, Eastern White Pines, and so forth. So uh, besides the lighthouse, what has Piney Point been known for?
2: Well, we were a torpedo testing facility. We were a Coast Guard facility. And just up the street from us stood a hotel called the Tolson's Hotel. And there was a steamboat wharf here. So Mm -hmm. um, we've got a lot of additional history besides just the lighthouse.
0: Yeah, it sounds like it uh the let's talk about the lighthouse now the lighthouse itself uh was built by a man by the name of john donahue uh what's significant about john donahue
2: well mr donahue was known for his quality of workmanship um and his and his prices um he built the piney point lighthouse for three thousand eight hundred and eighty eight dollars and he's built about a dozen lighthouses in uh, maryland and virginia a lot up and down the potomac river here and um the uh, eastern shore side of Maryland.
0: If we could talk about the the human history of uh, the light station there uh, for a long time, there were keepers and families living there. Is there anything that especially stands out for you related to that, the history of the keepers and families there?
2: I love the fact that we had five female keepers here at Piney Point and they were hardy women.
0: I guess so, yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Are there any stories related to those, uh, those five women that, uh, that you find interesting?
2: I, I have done some research. All of them have a, a couple of stories. The one that was here last, Beatrice Goshi, she taught some of the Coast Guardsmen how to swim. Uh, you would mm. think that the Coast Guardsmen would know how to swim, but her and her husband were the last keepers here. Yeah. And he was uh, brought into the Coast Guard, and when he passed away, she was the keeper for 40 days. And she had to train the new Coasties coming in, and a lot of them didn't know how to swim.
0: You know, I'm, I'm not real surprised by that. In fact, I also know that a lot of the uh, Lighthouse families, those people, it was a little unusual, I think, for her to be a good swimmer because a lot of them didn't know how to swim. I think they just didn't, didn't do it. For one thing, yeah. uh, especially up here in the Northeast, the water was so cold, you, you don't especially want to go in. But uh, <laughs> well, how is the, is, does the water get fairly warm there in the, the summer?
2: It does. The problem is, is we have something called jellyfish.
0: And we have those a little bit up here, but I think you have them, have them more so. So one of the interesting things about Piney Point Lighthouse is the wooden stairs, wooden stairway inside the tower. Uh, I think it's pretty rare. I don't think there are many 19th century lighthouses that still have wooden stairs. Uh, What can you tell me about that?
2: When I arrived here almost 15 years ago, um, some preservation work had already been done on the stairs and the lighthouse. And in about 2013, 2014, we had another preservation job. So the spiral stairs, the center post that holds them up, have all been filled with epoxy never rot and disintegrate
0: so uh you get uh, a lot of people climbing those stairs right and apparently they're they're doing well they're holding up well
2: yes we added some new paint to them and um, replaced a section of the handrail that had broken out from the wall um but they're holding up very well
0: yeah are they the original stairs so they go back to 1830 as far
2: as i know they are the original stairs i know the post absolutely is the original post But Mm. I've never our preservation guys said they don't see where those stairs were ever replaced according to how the top and bottom are connected. But they're like petrified wood now.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's that's really, really impressive. Uh, I want to talk about the lens a little bit recently or maybe a few months ago. Now, I interviewed Dan Spinella of Artworks Florida, really talented (laughs) man. Uh, for this podcast, and uh, he creates replica Fresnel lenses. Uh, A lot of them are in museums. Uh, Some of them are in lighthouses. Uh, He created uh, one of his replica lenses for your museum, which I believe was put on display earlier this year. Uh, Can you tell me about that?
2: Yeah, it's, it's a replica of the fifth order Fresnel lens that would have been here at the Piney Point Lighthouse. And um, I had the great pleasure of watching Dan install that lens, and um, he installed it in a replica cupola that was built by our technician Tom Emery. So mm-hmm. it's um, it's really a neat piece for our museum.
0: Oh, it sounds sounds great. It sounds like a, probably is becoming kind of a kind of a centerpiece for your museum. I would imagine
2: it is. Uh, what, it is. You know,
0: what other types of things exhibits are, are there in the museum for people to see?
2: I'm so glad you asked. (laughs) We have been um, very busy during COVID. Um, We installed three brand new exhibits um, in our main museum, as well as a fourth uh, temporary exhibit, and we installed some new panels at the Keeper's Quarters. One of our new exhibits is a timeline that talks about um, how lighthouses became and about Mr. Pleasanton and then it talks about some of our keepers and kind of how we became the museum division and, and kind of got to where we are today. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a, an exhibit called the uh, Black Panther German Submarine. Um, most people don't know there's a submarine out in the water off of our area here. So mm-hmm. um, we have that. One of our new exhibits is on ospreys. Um, we really made this kid-friendly, so we have um, a nest that the kids can climb into huh. and some hands-on things for them. And then our other newest exhibit is the Tolson Hotel exhibit, which is my favorite now because I got to do all the research on it and work with some of the families locally up the street here who had a lot of the photographs and things. So. That was a a big piece for us to get that exhibit in. The temporary exhibit is uh, a partnership we did with a local um, yachting club called Corinthian Yachting Club. And they um, had some really interesting things when I went to a meeting there. And they are a very old uh, yacht club that came out of Anacostia from Washington, DC. So we did a temporary exhibit uh, focusing on their club. And then we borrowed some um, Uh, replica um, speed boats and little boat models and things so Mm. that's in that's downstairs here also so we've we've got a lot of new really cool things to show people now
0: that does sound really cool you mentioned covid so uh we're, we're speaking on may 27th and we're just a couple of days before memorial day weekend here so First of all, I really appreciate you spending this time today. I know it's a very, very busy time for you right now. Are you just reopening after COVID or what's the story with that?
2: We reopened in November on a very limited basis and we've been doing tours where um, people make an appointment, but um, in the past couple of weeks, we've kind of changed that. We are not bundling people up in groups. We're still taking individual families and people out on their Mm -hmm. tours individually. We Actually, provide a walking tour because our site is so spread out. Mm-hmm. And just last week, the mask came off. So it's kind of a if you want to wear them, and if you don't, then don't. So, yeah,
0: yeah, that's exciting. That's really exciting. I'm getting my second uh, vaccination shot right after I speak with you today, by the way. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Most so everybody in our county here has had a vaccine, they're working on the kids now.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I don't know we, why I'm, I, uh, well, I've had to wait longer than most people I know, but anyway, I'm getting that. I'll take care of it. <laughs> um, I did the best I could. That's the appointment I got. So when people visit there, uh, you've got the museum, but is the tower itself, the lighthouse tower open for climbing?
2: That's part of our paid tour. Mm-hmm. So our tour consists of the main museum and its exhibits, the keeper's quarters. So when we take them down to the lighthouse, they can climb all the way to the top.
0: Mm -hmm. great it's not a super tall lighthouse but i imagine there's still a great view of the area from there
2: it's 35 feet high with a 15 foot cupola on top and it is a great view of the potomac river um most people from not from outside the area people don't realize that that's um virginia across from us Mm -hmm. so it's it's interesting a lot of people love it um you know we have weddings here that sort of thing
0: well reminds me a lot of my local lighthouse here portsmouth harbor lighthouse not it's a different style lighthouse but the height is very similar and we're right on the edge of New Hampshire looking across the water at Maine. So oh, okay. uh, yeah we have some things in common. So you mentioned uh, tours of so visitors uh, get a, a guided tour of the site as you said. Is that something that has been going on lately but is that a regular thing even beyond COVID that people will get guided tours?
2: Yes yes um, all our outline buildings are secured so one of our staff have to take you out and let you into those buildings. So it's, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's a, it's a great day out for the family. Um, adults are $7 and seniors and military with ID and kids are three fifty. Wow. So good you know, to come out and spend the day. And I mean, the tour can take anywhere from an hour to two hours, depending mm-hmm. on how much you want to read and learn.
0: Sure. Sure. And I imagine it's just a, a really pleasant place to, to hang out for a while as well as, uh, seeing the lighthouse and exhibits do people do some people arrive uh by boat or kayak
2: we have a kayak launch and i've never had anybody arrive by kayak but um because we are on the water and we do have a pier and a boardwalk um, we occasionally get some boaters over from virginia or we'll get boating groups that will come down and kind of raft up out the river and then they'll bring some little dinghies over and then they'll come in i usually that's a pre-scheduled tour so to speak
0: Mm -hmm. sure do you have school groups come there for tours
2: we did pre-covid right um um,
0: again yeah
2: yes i i hope you know that we'll get back into that i suspect it's going to take a year or two to kind of get those things going again but um we're starting to gear up again with some of our outside events and some of our activities, so.
0: Yeah, yeah. I imagine your answer to my next question would be similar. Do you have any special events? I know there's been, uh, you know, uh, you haven't been able to do those recently, but uh, normally do you have special events there?
2: We normally do, and we are heading into doing the two main events that we have this year. Um, One is uh, we do a big open house on National Lighthouse Weekend, And we're celebrating our 185th um, anniversary this year when the lighthouse was built. So we got quite a few things planned for that. Mm
1: -hmm. And
2: then in the fall, we do a fundraiser for our friends organization called RetroFest. So think like uh, 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s.
0: So uh, when? people visit there, and as you said, it, it sounds like a really great place for families to visit, but, uh, you know, I'm sure all, you get people from all over, I'm sure, all kinds of people. What do you hope people come away with when they visit the Lighthouse and Museum there?
2: I think they have a new appreciation for the historical significance of our Lighthouse, and just learn something new. I, I try to learn something new wherever I go if I'm on vacation, so...
0: Doing this podcast gives me appreciation for for lighthouses all the time, and I learn so much every time I talk to somebody uh, like yourself. Why? Here's a big question for you. Why is Piney Point Light Station worth preserving?
2: Well, it's part of St. Mary's County's history, as well as the Coast Guard. Our county is surrounded by water and lighthouses. There's a number of lighthouses within 15, 20 minutes of me. And so, you know, to preserve all our lighthouses is, I think, really important for the county.
0: Oh, sure. And you're in a very, as you say, a very lighthouse-rich area there. But yours is uh, one of the most historic. Let me ask you a question here. And this is something I haven't asked anybody in a while. But I'm just curious your your thoughts on this. What do you see as the biggest challenge facing lighthouse preservation organizations uh, moving forward?
2: I think funding is the biggest challenge for preservation of lighthouses we are county government owned and so it kind of needs to be part of our budget but isn't always there yeah. and the um preservation needs to be cyclic you know you can come and repoint the bricks and do some whitewash but it's got to be done again in five ten or fifteen years and you have to keep planning for that you can't wait till it's too late and yeah. that's happened to us a couple of times so you know that the funding is just not always there and you can't always depend on grants to to get all that money together for what you need so well,
0: i i agree with you that um i guess uh, for me personally the the funding uh is one of the, the top three things the others would be uh climate change I think is a big challenge a lot of us are going to face more at some lighthouses than others and having enough volunteers to me those are kind of the trilogy of uh, challenges we're facing
2: certainly the climate change for us um, we have a very serious uh, erosion problem right now the lighthouse itself is okay but um, some of our other buildings are in jeopardy at this point and so we are working with lots of different people but that kind of thing does not move quickly so
0: it doesn't move quickly unfortunately and it's also very expensive so it ties into the funding problem but erosion control can be so so expensive or or moving uh lighthouses in some cases i don't know if that's being uh discussed uh, yet with your your site does that come (laughs) into the conversation at all no
2: no if anything had to be moved it would be the building i'm sitting in right now (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay. The backside is about three feet from the water at this point.
0: Wow, so, it, it's more of a modern building, right?
2: It's... It well, it was built probably back in the fifties. Okay, and the uh, shoreline behind us is—it's um, although it's on the creek side, um, people don't realize how much wind and water damage we get when everything's blowing down the river. And so it it comes up on the backside of this building.
0: Well, just uh, be careful. Don't. <laughs> you know, I hope it gets uh, taken care of before it becomes too too bad. Uh, so I have one final question for you for bonus points, okay? Uh, and the question is: What is your personal favorite thing about your work at Piney Point Lighthouse and Museum and Historic Park?
2: I have two favorite things. I love meeting the people who come here because they come from all over the world. Before pre-COVID, we could have people from Japan and Germany. And and so it seems like lighthouses really attract people from all over the world. The other thing is, um, it kind of goes back to my park ranger days. I get to work here at the beach all day (laughs) you know I can get up from my desk and go down the street and walk around my lighthouse and walk down the beach and just enjoy the surrounding waterway so um, I've got a great uh, great office here
0: yeah I guess so yeah Uh, definitely lucky in that way and uh, I'm sure the organization is, is lucky to have you in your your position So April Havens, uh, site uh, manager, again, at the Piney Point Lighthouse Museum and Historic Park. Uh, It's great talking with you, and I'm going to tell you a little secret. I have not been to your lighthouse, but that needs to change. (laughs) (laughs) I look forward to to visiting, and uh, I hope that's not too too long from now. So uh, I really appreciate uh, you spending some time with me today. Good luck with the Memorial Day weekend coming up.
2: Thank you, and I hope to get up to your lighthouse at some point in time. I I've traveled out to California a little bit and seen some lighthouses out there and I've seen a number on the East Coast, but I'd like to go up further north and Michigan and up in that area. So
0: Yeah, yeah. Oh, same with me. I've seen a lot, but there's so many more to see. Uh so there please, are. Yeah. There are. By all means let me know if you're gonna be in this area.
2: So okay. Thank, thank, thank you.
1: The Point Lighthouse and Museum is currently open every day from 10 to 5. You can find more information on the St. Mary's County website at stmarysmd.com.
0: We have another guest today. I first met Lee Radzak at a conference more than 20 years ago, and it's always a pleasure to talk with him. He recently retired after nearly 37 years as the resident site manager of Split Rock Light in Minnesota.
1: Split Rock Lighthouse is located on a 127-foot-high cliff on the northwest shore of Lake Superior. The lighthouse went into service on August 1, 1910. For more than half a century, it helped guide freighters carrying ore mined from Minnesota's iron range.
0: The Coast Guard declared the lighthouse obsolete and it was discontinued as an official navigational aid in 1969. Ownership was transferred to the state of Minnesota and today the Minnesota Historical Society administers the site. The light station is the centerpiece of 2200 acre Split Rock Lighthouse State Park.
1: The light station is one of the most popular tourist attractions in the state of Minnesota with more than 150,000 visitors each year. Lee Radzak became the lighthouse site manager in November 1982 and moved with his wife Jane into one of the three keeper's houses near the lighthouse. Their two children were born during the family's years at Split Rock.
0: After retiring in 2019, Lee began work on a new book, The View from Split Rock, A Lighthouse Keeper's Life. The book, which is co-written by journalist and author Kurt Brown, takes readers into the life of a modern-day lighthouse keeper at Split Rock. The book is organized by season and is illustrated with photos taken by Lee and other talented photographers. I spoke with Lee Radzak a couple of weeks ago about his new book. Let's listen to that now. I'm speaking today with Lee Radzak, who was the site manager for Split Rock Lighthouse in Minnesota for, I believe it was just short of 37 years. Am I right about that, Lee? That's correct. Okay. Okay. And, uh, of course, you're also the author of the new book, The View from Split Rock, A Lighthouse Keeper's Life. Thank you so much for being with me today, Lee.
3: Glad to be here, Jeremy. Always good to talk to you.
0: Yeah, likewise. Uh, Of course, you were on this podcast before, back in Episode 77, along with the present site manager at Split Rock, uh, Hayes Scriven. That was a lot of fun. So I'm going to try not to ask a lot of the same questions. I don't want to be too repetitive here. Uh, I refer people to that that interview, episode 77, if they want to hear more about your life at Split Rock. But uh, today we'll mostly focus on the book. So let me ask you, uh, what made you decide to write a book about your experiences at Split Rock Lighthouse?
3: Uh, well, <laughs> primarily, I guess it's because the Minnesota Historical Society Press uh, asked if I would be interested in doing it. Uh, you know, over the last oh, several years before I retired, People started saying, friends and just people I knew from work said, oh, you know, I'd tell them stories about Split Rock and say, oh, you should write a book. You've got enough stories. And and apparently the press uh, thought the same thing. And it was a unique and different enough job and enough unique things to write about that uh, it became a book over the last two years since I retired.
0: Okay. I was going to ask you how long it took. So a couple of years uh, from the start of the project. Is that about right?
3: Yeah, it, since inception and all the the organization and um, working with the press and everything else and editors, yeah, it was a it was a good full year of writing anyway, and that it worked out pretty well because that was during a pandemic and it was you know, I could sit in front of the computer and spend a lot of time looking back at uh, photographs of the last uh, thirty six years and. Uh, and records I had and and put them all together.
0: Oh, it sounds like a perfect uh, project for a a pandemic. So the book is co-written by Kurt Brown. Who is he? What was his role in the book?
3: Yeah, Kurt Brown is, uh, he's from Minnesota. He's an author who uh, writes uh, history. He's written a couple of really good books on Minnesota history. One is called 1918. It's about, uh, there's a huge forest fires in minnesota at that time there was the spanish flu there was uh, the end of world war one uh, so he's got a book just on 1918 in minnesota and then he uh, the one that really connected us was in 19 or, or 2010 he wrote uh, a book uh so terrible a storm about the matafa blow which was uh matafa was a ship on uh, On Lake Superior that went down uh, during a storm um, just a half mile or so away from Split Rock and was the reason that the lighthouse was built. Um, And a very interesting story, very interesting storm. 29 ships were lost or damaged during that storm. So uh, he wrote a book on that. He was at Split Rock. We spent some time sharing information and files and um, got to know him. And he's also a writer for the Minneapolis Star Tribune who has a history column and um so good background on that and you know i've never written a novel or a book and plenty of articles out during my lighthouse years but uh nothing like this uh, a whole book so it really helped to have uh, to collaborate with him and have his experience i would write it and send it off to him he lives in colorado now and um and then he would go over it and clean it up a little bit and um, Put put the words together in a good good way that they made sense and um, and then between that then we'd send it off to the to the press and the editors and, and it really worked well we really got along and had a good collaborative uh, relationship he liked to say that you know I'd, I'd give him a lot of credit for what he was doing and thank him and he said well the way I put it he said is that it's your house and I'm just the house painter so. <laughs> He was putting the final touches on it.
0: When you were back at the lighthouse living there over the years, did you keep a journal or notes along the way with the maybe with the idea of writing a book at some point?
3: You know, I did keep a journal. I kept a daily log, actually. And uh, right off the bat, when I started in 1982, I started hit the ground hard. Uh, Reviewing all of the keepers logs uh, from Split Rock that over the years from 1910, they had kept their daily journals and I thought, boy, that's a pretty, pretty astute thing to do with. Nobody really said I had to do it, but but I did it. Every day I would record what happened, what the weather was like, uh, what preservation projects we were doing. Uh, what was getting painted, what colors and what was getting fixed and hiring staff and everything else. So for all those years, yeah, every year I kept a journal book and entered uh, just pretty religiously every day I'd enter something and then had that to go back and look back on when I was putting things together. So it was very helpful.
0: I just got the book very recently. Of course, it hasn't been out long. And as I was uh, reading it, I was Noticing, obviously, there's a lot of history of the light station, and its keepers. It's not just about your experience. Also, a lot about the natural environment and wildlife there. So it's really a combination of those three things: your own experience, the history, and the the natural environment. Was that kind of how you conceived it from the start as being a combination of those things?
3: Yes, it was. I, you know, I thought if I ever were to write something, before I did write it, um, when I was thinking about what. What would people be interested in? and Who would be the audience for a book like this? And of course, the visitation at Split Rock Lighthouse is so high. There's about 160,000 annual visitors that come there. And of course, everybody recognizes photographs of it. Uh, and so there's, there's the people that really love Lake Superior, uh, the North Shore, and the lighthouse. Uh, there's, there's people that love lighthouses in general and li- love the history of lighthouses. And there's people that like the nature and uh, everything about it, the wildlife and the storms and what it's like living on the biggest body of fresh water in the world. So it really helped to look at it from those perspectives and um, what what points I wanted to cover. And, and it was actually my wife's idea to uh, break it down by seasons, yeah. and which worked pretty well. That um, We were able to, because there is such a variety in the seasons, and and the seasons on the North Shore Lake Superior can be different and are different than anywhere else, Uh, so it really was good to do it that way and to talk about the cycle of seasons at the lighthouse.
0: Yeah, uh, I think it's a really good idea the way you broke it up by seasons, including all the material on the the nature and the, the place itself aside from the lighthouse. I think Helps make it special. I think, uh, you know, appeal to a lot of people besides uh, lighthouse people. Us lighthouse nuts uh, will love it, yeah. too. Right at the beginning of the book, you talk about uh, when you started the tradition of lighting the lighthouse for the anniversary of the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. And that's become a well ever since you started. I think it's been a popular uh, event every year. What made you decide to do that in the first place?
3: You know, it was um, when the first year I did it on November 10th, um, it was the 10th anniversary Of the Edmund Fitzgerald sailing out past the lighthouse out of Duluth, Superior, going out into the storm and uh, sinking on the far end, on the eastern end of uh, Lake Superior. What got it going was I was driving into November 10th on the North Shore. It was the end of shipping or end of uh, tourist season. So it was pretty slow, pretty rainy, misty weather. And then of course, I heard uh, Gordon Lightfoot's song, uh, The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, on the radio driving to town and got me thinking about, well, it was exactly 10 years ago tonight that they sailed right along the North Shore and past the lighthouse here. And I thought, well, when I get back home, I think it's a fitting tribute to just turn the beacon on for a couple hours and right at sunset and leave it on till about 7 o'clock when the ship actually went down. And, um so I did that the first night. A few neighbors noticed it and asked about why I did it, and I explained it. And then the next year, a couple of people asked, are you going to do that again? And I said, yeah, I think, you know, it would be nice to do it again. And, and then uh, next year, a few people showed up, dropped in at the lighthouse, and and it kind of just got legs that way real slowly at first. And it took probably five years before we said, yeah, let's let's do a little kind of a, some kind of a ceremony or at least formalize it a little more and invite people and do some uh, media releases on the November 10th, the beacon's going to be lit. So the first time was 1985 on the 10th anniversary. And by the early 1990s, it had kind of become an event on its own. And and we knew by then there was no going back and that uh, I had enough staff at the lighthouse by then that we could – open up the new visitor center that had been built recently and uh, do some events around that night and people in in the dark and you know it's after dark when the beacon's lit so it's uh, cold and it's rainy in november and uh, we wanted to get make it a good experience for people so and that's just gotten legs and kept going ever since
0: that was an excellent idea it's obviously a a really nice memorial it's also a Great way for people to see that that beautiful light in use, which, just to make it clear, uh, the light was discontinued as an aid to navigation
3: how long ago now? Uh 1969. Uh-huh. And uh, we were very fortunate. Um, Split Rock is really unusual in that the Coast Guard, uh, they deemed it as obs- obsolete. They decommissioned it or deaccessioned it, as they call it or disestablish it, I guess is the word that they technically use for it, in 1969. And um, they'd left the Fresnel lens in place, the third order bivalve lens, uh, which usually, you know, they pull them out right away uh, due to vandalism and just being so exposed. But they knew that that the light station was going to be turned over to the state of Minnesota and maintained as a historic site. Um, and that's kind of where I came in. It first started out as part of a very small state park on the North Shore and then was turned over to the Minnesota Historical Society to operate and in 82 then I became the site manager at the site.
0: Yeah, that is a, a great thing. The lens was left in place. They're nice in museums, but their natural environment is in the lighthouse itself. You have an unusual uh, rotation system there, too. But I'm going to save that question for a few minutes from now. But I was thinking about the wildlife uh, you write about in the in the book. Obviously, you saw a wide range of wildlife, uh, birds and all kinds of mammals, all kinds of things during your stay there. Without doing any spoilers here, can you maybe give one or two examples of the most interesting wildlife encounters you had there?
3: <laughs> yeah, you know, um One thing that was always of interest to to my family living there was bird migrations Uh, that, of course, most birds don't want to fly across Lake Superior because it's so large. So they follow the North Shore south down to Duluth and then fan out across uh, the United States as they migrate south. So there's a huge hawk migration that uh, comes along the North Shore, and that's really interesting to, to see that happen every year. Another really interesting thing, of course there's in Northern Minnesota, there's a lot of the big mammals are still around. Uh, uh, Moose, black bear, uh, timber wolves. uh, We've seen all of those at the site. I've got pictures of them in the book. Uh, In 10 years ago, in, uh, in 2011, Uh, That There happened to be every two years, the state of Minnesota legislature has to renew the budget, and they didn't get it done in time by July 1st, so they had to shut down the entire state government for 21 days in July, and part of that was closing state parks and historic sites. Um, So, middle of tourist season, middle of the summer, I couldn't let anybody on the site, Uh, so it kind of, we spent 21 days there, just Jane and and I and the kids uh, seeing what life was like for the early keepers with no people around when there was no highway up the North Shore, when it was really wild. And a lot of the wildlife started coming back. We had a, a moose come right up uh, by the to the base of the lighthouse and was grazing on Virginia creepers along the, the fence edge uh, right outside our window. And, yeah, it was interesting to see how quickly things reverted that way. So I write about some of that kind of thing
0: in the book. You just mentioned your kids, and we talked about them a bit in the the last time I had you on the podcast, but uh, let me just ask you again. Your two children, John and Anna, were born during the the time you were living at the lighthouse. Mm -hmm. Uh, How do you think growing up at, at a lighthouse like that in such a spectacular place, how did that make their childhood different from other kids, do you think? For
3: the first 10 years, of course, they didn't know anything different of between where they lived and the kids in town. And it was similar, I guess, to kids who live on remote farms and that kind of thing, as is they're isolated and they spend a lot of time keeping themselves entertained and they were each other's best friends. And that continues to this day. And I think that was fostered by them uh, living where they did. And we were a really close, tight-knit family. I think the high visitation and the uh, fishbowl syndrome, as they call it, Uh, Added to that, that we were always kind of on display uh, during the busy time of the year, and so in addition to being able to be good around the public and with people, they also, uh, you know, liked their privacy, wanted their privacy. Um, So when winter came, uh, it was a different story. It was a lot quieter, and we could have more family time together without uh, a lot of interruptions. And they went on to john went on to work for dnr in the state park for five years in high school and a couple years of college and uh Anna went on to major in environmental studies so i think it, it had a impact on them in that way that they appreciated nature and loved the setting
0: i'm sure your attitude had a little bit to do with that too We've kind of rubbed off probably, on them I'm sure. probably
3: so yeah and i wanted the job because of where it was so close to nature too and that was Something both Jane and I were anxious to move into and move away from the Twin Cities at the time.
0: So let's get back to the lens a little bit. Another thing you wrote about in the book that I found really interesting was the fact that the the Fresnel lens at split rock rotates on a mercury bed as many uh, lighthouses used to used to do used to have. Uh, That system was uh, quite common. It's very rare now. In fact, I think split rock might be the only lighthouse in the US that still has a lens that rotates on a mercury bed. Am I correct about that?
3: I'm uh, almost certain that it's the only one that's left to be allowed to continue to do that. And it's because we're keeping an eye on it.
0: yeah. I'm almost almost certain about that too. So uh, I was very interested to read about how you drained and cleaned the mercury a couple of times during your time there. Uh, I think I would have been a little nervous about that, uh, but I guess you did some study uh, before before going ahead with that. But what was that experience like?
3: We actually did it twice. The first time was a couple of years after I started, and I knew, of course, uh, that. It was still floating and rotating on the mercury bearing about six quarts of mercury in the base of the lens in the float bowl. I knew that it occasionally had to be cleaned because, especially because uh, the site manager that was there for a few years prior to me being there had uh, put some motor oil on top of the, the little bit of space where the mercury is exposed. He had heard that that's a way to seal it off from the and from evaporating into the air. Of course, that oil uh, ends up collecting gunk and dead flies and dust. And uh, so that's the main reason drained it. Myself and a maintenance man drained it and cleaned all the gunk and oil and everything out of it. Uh, The second time we did it, uh, was in 2009, and that was a much more, of course, by then we had the Minnesota Department of Health involved, the Pollution Control Agency. We jumped through a lot of hoops, did a lot of studying on uh, what it would take to maintain it and to keep it there and keep it safe for all the people that visit there. So um, we had, uh, at the time, it was Jim Woodward and Kurt Fosberg, who are two uh, lampists as a well official U.S. Coast Guard sanctioned, Lampus, who came and uh, we contracted with them to help and Tyveked up wore the Tyvek suits and the respirators and everything else and drained the mercury out, uh, cleaned all the float bowl and all the mechanisms and the pivot pins and everything else. And this time, the, our best knowledge was to put mineral oil on top instead of motor oil because that does break down over time. Uh, mineral oil, uh, just a thin skim of mineral oil on top of a little bit of mercury uh, mm. exposed. And uh, so that's what we did at that time. And uh, that's what it's maintained today. And now we'll, I understand it won't have to be done for another 20 years or so if, if everything maintains itself. And they, of course, we inspected all of the bearings, and the original clockwork mechanism is still operating. Uh, that's what rotates it. Uh, every two hours, the uh, uh, keeper or uh, any staff, what I did when I turned it on was crank up, hand crank up that clockwork uh, about 150 revolutions and bring those weights up to the top and, and let them drop. So so it is, the, as far as I know, the only lighthouse in the country, in the United States, that operates totally on uh, its original clockwork mechanism, its weight system, uh, mercury float. The only thing that's different is that the kerosene incandescent oil vapor lamp has been replaced with a 1,000-watt incandescent light bulb. Uh, so that's what what you see when it's turned on today.
0: Yeah, I'm almost certain it's the only one in the U.S. with, uh, with those uh, distinctions. To change the subject a bit, there's a part in the book where you talk about the beautiful night skies at Split Rock, What was so special about the night skies there and how did they change over the years that you were there?
3: Well, what's really impressive about that far north um, in Minnesota is that northern Minnesota is um, you get north of Duluth and the lighthouse is about 45 miles north of Duluth up the North Shore. It's sparsely populated. It's a lot of its boreal forest. Uh, There's not much for towns, a few small towns. Um, so there's very little night lighting that you know sprays and gets escapes into the night sky so when you go out at night it's dark it's a star show a light show like you wouldn't believe uh, and it's not just stars it's uh the northern lights at certain times it's milky way you know the satellites uh at least for for me i was gone before this these new uh what's this line of satellites it's been um, Starlink oh. or something. That,
0: is that Elon Musk's uh, thing?
3: Yes, yes. Yeah. And uh, the new the new site manager up there has said that he's seen that on mm-hmm. a couple of occasions, and it's it's pretty jarring compared to the what you're usually seeing with a totally dark sky. And the way it's changed over the years is um, since the 1980s, of course, there's been a little bit more development, and the development that happens, uh, there's – the lighting, some of it isn't done as carefully and with the thought of keeping dark skies. Uh, so there, there is, you look toward down towards Duluth and Two Harbors, Minnesota, and you can see a little bubble of light in the sky over the, those towns. And you look across the lake into Wisconsin and you can see some light from Ashland, Wisconsin, Washburn, Wisconsin, Bayfield. But still, if you look out into the, mainly to the Northeast into the big part of the lake, it's a black horizon as far as you can see, unless you see uh, some of the thousand footers, some of the ore boats coming in with a line of lights uh, lighting the horizon. But uh, yeah, it's it's beautiful, and uh, we really appreciated. A good example is that um, when we when people called about the Edmund Fitzgerald event, um, and they were going to come up for it, and of course that happened just after dark. Um, we would have to remind them if they were coming up from the Twin Cities or other populated places, bring a flashlight. Because if you have to park down in the state park, you're going to be bumping into trees and have your hands out in front of you. It gets so dark at night.
0: Yeah. I really love the story in your book about the time a movie was being shot there, or part of a movie anyway, a scene. Can you say a little bit about that?
3: Yeah, I guess there's a couple of stories. And there are a couple of pretty... Well-known, famous actors that were involved in it. Um, this was in 1993, and it was a 20th Century Fox movie called *The Good Son*. And it might—the the title was *A Good Son*, but I don't think it was a good movie because it got hand pretty pretty poorly at, at the I've box office. It. Yeah,
0: I've seen it. it. It's not not on the not on my top 10 list.
3: Yeah, it's a pretty dark film. It's when uh, Macaulay Culkin uh, tried going the other way from the Home Alone series and uh, tried to be a uh, kind of a scamp and uh, uh, evil kid, so yeah. uh, I was Macaulay Culkin and Elijah Wood, and um, of course Elijah Wood uh, played the good the good son, and uh, Macaulay Culkin was the bad little boy. But uh, they shot; uh, they needed a, a location that looked like uh, the cliffs of the East Coast, and um, I believe they are going for Massachusetts or somewhere in that area, with, and overlooking the Atlantic Ocean. <clears throat> and uh so the only place they could find is uh that they apparently the director saw a picture of the split rock lighthouse on a calendar and said there's a cliff we can use um go there sent the scouts there to see if we can use it and and we agreed to use it for the final shots in the movie they actually built an artificial cliff which there's a f- couple of photographs of in the book of uh, what they went through to build to make this film it's incredible <laughs> What they will do for uh, three minutes of film on a, in a major motion picture, but uh, it was quite the experience. And working with uh, with the two on it, Macaulay Culkin needed a, a place to to school to have his tutor school, and when he was here, so uh, we agreed to let him use our house because it was quiet, and um, so he'd come over for an hour or two at a time between shots and and study and uh, get tutored in our living room. Got to know our kids a little bit, and um, and it, w- it was pretty interesting experience. Uh, I wouldn't want to go through movie making on a regular basis, but there's been two fairly major films uh, shot at the lighthouse in my tenure there. And the other one was called Virginia, Minnesota, which even though it was a feature film, it I don't know. It was an independent, so I don't know how much uh, publicity it got and if it's really popular. That's another one that was shot more recently, 2016, I believe.
0: I don't know that one. The the part in the this in your description of the when they were making the movie The The Good Son there that has to do with the BB gun uh was really interesting <laughs> too. But maybe we should leave that and that'll uh maybe entice people to to want to get book and read read the whole story in there.
3: Uh, yeah, picture Macaulay Calkin running loose with a BB gun <laughs> in his park.
0: <laughs> so he was maybe he was uh living the role of the the bad kids yes. yeah. anyway so uh, you also included some recipes in the book which i thought was really neat these sour cream rhubarb cake sounds especially good did you ever think about publishing a cookbook a split rock cookbook
3: <laughs> well you no know, in fact those recipes were ones that my wife had used over time and and the the recipe idea was kind of her idea and it uh, it's fun to to see what some of those can be and what some of the wild ingredients are for them. Um, and there are several cookbooks. Um, I've seen uh, oh, Lighthouse Keepers, Lighthouse Cookbooks, and uh, North Shore Cookbooks, and Minnesota Cookbooks. And I, yeah, we didn't figure it was worth going all the way to do another one, but and it was fun to include a few recipes and, and the thoughts behind them. Jane had some comments on each of those recipes. Yeah,
0: so, yeah it was a really nice touch, I thought. You know, uh, I just want to say uh, I'm. I tend to be kind of a purist when it comes to calling people lighthouse keepers. Maybe not as much as I used to be, but uh, you know, I used to always think that you could only say someone was a lighthouse keeper if they were employed by the federal government to, to operate the, the light and fog signal to maintain them. And for the most part, there really haven't been any traditional lighthouse keepers in this country since 1990. But I have to say, if anyone deserves to be called a lighthouse keeper, it's you. Uh, and that's not just because you spent so many years at Split Rock. But, you know, you did so many things there. You did uh, most of the things that historic keepers did and more in many ways. Uh, they didn't have to worry about maintaining a historic site and accommodating large numbers of visitors and so forth. So uh, anyway, I just want to say that I feel you've completely earned the title of the book. The complete title is The View from Split Rock, A Lighthouse Keeper's Life. So uh, you are definitely a lighthouse keeper in the in the truest sense.
3: Well, thank you, Jeremy. That's, that's a real compliment. And I've always been sort of uncomfortable with that uh, title, too. Um, you know, you can't, uh, can't avoid it when you live at a lighthouse and do the things that the keepers did in a lot of ways, but you didn't have that responsibility and that isolation and monitor in any association with them.
0: Well, uh you are very much in that tradition. So we're speaking to you today on June 29th, the book just came out, it officially came out in sometime in May, is that right? Last
3: month? I believe it was May 22nd, correct.
0: How's the reception been so far?
3: It's been great. Um you know, it's uh, I've heard a lot of good things. Uh, my sister told me that her friend went to the library around the Twin Cities and she was 13th on the library waiting list to to check out the book. So that surprised me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's been selling well. And, uh, you know, I think it's there's a wide enough audience and enough people interested in enough v- variety in it and enough photographs that it can almost be looked at like a National Geographic uh, magazine or something that you can if you don't want to read the whole thing, you can uh, read the captions and look at the pictures.
0: <laughs> oh, definitely. You know, it's it's a beautiful book. It's beautifully put together. As you said, a lot of great color photos, also some historic uh, black and white photos. It's a great read. It's really well written. And as we've kind of said, most lighthouse books are especially interesting, obviously, to, to lighthouse buffs like us. But this one has so much other stuff about the, uh, the natural environment uh, and the history of the area and so forth on the Great Lakes like Superior. So there's a lot there for anybody who's interested in that area in general and the history of that area. Two more quick questions for you. How is retired life treating you?
3: <laughs> well, re- retired life is good. I'm, we're away from the big lake. We're in uh, central Minnesota, which is corn country, uh, where Jane grew up. Uh, but it's it's beautiful. Um, you know, it's we took the pandemic pretty well. Uh, we were pretty used to isolation. And, of course, the pandemic kind of made everybody lighthouse keepers and that everybody had to isolate and watch their friends sail by like ships on the horizon and, and not – be too close, but now that that's settling down and we're, and the book is settling down a little bit, we're able to start enjoying retirement and doing some of the things and getting back up to Split Rock in the North Shore. We still have a cabin in the area and still have a big connection with a lot of friends and relatives up in that area, so we'll keep that going.
0: Good, that sounds sounds good. Uh, as far as uh, getting the book, obviously it's easy to get. People can buy it, I'm sure, through Amazon and the other online sources. It's probably in a lot of bookstores in, in Minnesota, I would I would assume also.
3: It um, is, yeah. And if you can order it right from the Minnesota Historical Society Press, it's just mm-hmm. uh, mnhs.org, and then just hit shop, and, and it's there.
0: mnhs.org, Minnesota Historical Correct. Society. Okay, great. Uh, so one final question for bonus points. What was your favorite part of working on the book?
3: Oh, boy. I guess, uh, you know, it's kind of a, a strange thing to, to spend that much time at, at a job and at a lighthouse and then try to encapsulate it in a book and to tell everything but not overtell it. And The fun was to, to go back and look at it again and kind of uh, sum up what the experience was like to try and look at it through other people's eyes and see what they'd be interested in and, uh, to see what the publishing process was. It's, it was pretty interesting to go through that process, but yeah, it's, uh, it was good to, I'm glad I saved uh, all of my photographs and all of the records and documents I had because it sure did come in
0: handy. Congratulations again on the book uh, being published. Thank you so much for being with me today, Lee, and I hope we can do it again sometime.
3: Great, Jeremy. I always enjoyed talking to you, and it was uh, fun to see you again.
0: Likewise. Stay cool.
3: Okay, you too.
1: To learn more about Split Rock Lighthouse, go to the Minnesota Historical Society website at mnhs.org. Click on Shop Online to purchase Lee Radzak's book and other items related to the lighthouse.
0: Lee is one of the leading figures involved with American lighthouses in the past few decades, and it was great to talk with him again. Next week in episode 128 of Lighthearted, we're going to focus on the effects of climate change on lighthouses, in particular Thomas Point Shoal Light on Chesapeake Bay. We'll be talking with Chris Overcash, who is an environmental engineer and climate resiliency expert.
1: Thanks to all the staff, members, and volunteers of the US Lighthouse Society for their support of this podcast. Be sure to check out the U.S. Lighthouse Society website at uslhs.org to learn more about upcoming tours, the Lighthouse Passport program, and all the things the Society offers. Remember that donations help support this podcast.
0: If you listen using Apple Podcasts, please rate and review us.
1: The best-selling author Amy Lee Mercury once said, quote, bringing joy to another light's a thousand suns within, end quote.
0: As always, thanks for listening and
1: keep a good light.